The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. I'm Rush Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, Emerging Opportunity in Women's Health and Other <laughs> Healthcare Stocks for Investors Radars. Today with me is Ann Gallo, Portfolio Manager of Wellington Management, where she leads the healthcare team. Welcome, Ann. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be a great conversation. You know, I, I think, as you know, last week we held our latest Level Up event series, and it was focused on this burgeoning opportunity in women's health. Um, an area that's sort of flown under the radar for a long time, despite the fact, as our guest Lex Capital's Dina Shakir noted, it is an issue that affects 51% of the population that happens to control 80% of household decisions and 70% of the money spent in healthcare. So I, I know you you sort of focus on publicly traded companies, but I would just love to kind of get your thoughts on you know how you're, you know what you're seeing on the opportunity in terms of women's healthcare more broadly, and whether you think that this is a burgeoning area of interest. Yeah, I absolutely think it's a burgeoning area of interest um, across both the publicly traded stock sector, which is where I predominantly focus, but also across private companies as well, where where we also participate. Um, and, and I think there there are several factors driving this surge in interest. Um, one, I, I think the key point is is the point you made to start. Women are thought to account for 70 to 80 percent of the healthcare decisions and the healthcare spend, which is which is critically important. Um, but there are other areas I think that's driving or other factors that's driving that interest as well. Um, when you think of <clears throat> the fact that healthcare is a very substantial chunk of the employed population, um, I believe about 17%, and about two-thirds of people that work in the healthcare industry are women. Um, that's a really important fact to, to consider uh, as yeah. well. Yeah, that's um, a great stat. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And and I think, you know, another driver would be just the realization that the fact is of the fact that despite what I just said, or women are massively underrepresented in the clinical trial population. So only about 40% of people that participate in clinical trials are actually women. And so, so that's an area um, where we're dropping the ball from a science standpoint. Um, another, I think, reason is just, you know, all of the new enabling technologies and all of the fabulous advancements we're seeing in digital health has really opened the doors uh, to women from a fundraising and a capital standpoint. And I, I think the number um, was $2.5 billion were raised um, in the private markets by companies looking to focus on women health, be it um, throughout the healthcare system, like structural women health issues, private practice, and so on, um, or be it in medical technologies, devices, or, or pharmaceuticals. So that's really exciting. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing area, and it's it's kind of crazy that we haven't talked about it much before because you know obviously women have been um, part of the population for a long period of time and and have been underserved. And it and, and I think that that really the two and a half billion dollar stat was 
quite striking compared to what it was just a couple of years ago. So there does seem to be um, at least VC interest in this area. Um, so I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, when we were having this conversation with the two venture capitalists, they talked a lot about sort of the early stage market. And we can talk about so, some of the interesting things you're seeing there. But I think that there was also um, talk about how some of the bigger companies are either talking about women's health, investing more in this area, or even looking for M&A from some of the earlier stage companies. I mean, what are you seeing on that front? Yeah, no, absolutely. You're seeing all of the above. And I, I would say that um, when you look at healthcare services, um, for the most part, it's dominated by, by the large publicly traded companies. And so much of the work that you're seeing as it relates to women's health may be going on kind of under the radar or behind the scenes. Um, but if you look across the board in terms of managed, managed care companies, as the world transitions from a fee-for-service-based healthcare system to one that's focused on value-based care mm. uh, and really trying to incorporate into the focus, um, you know, outcomes management, improving the health of the most people at, at the best cost. Um, you're, you're seeing a lot of thought given to how more investments in um, women's health can facilitate that. Um, so, so definitely among the managed care companies, that this is a very significant part of where they're investing directly or indirectly. You also th see this throughout the medical technology spaces. Um, you know, one of the companies that we own is a company named Hologix, and this company is a diagnostic company. Half the business is focused on um, traditional diagnostic testing, and the other half of the company is focused on women's health and breast health. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, um, this is one of the the maybe the few specific areas where you're seeing a publicly traded company really invest in significantly in innovation and R&D to deal with women's health specific issues, as opposed to the kind of the indirect investment we're seeing elsewhere. But it's not exclusive um, to that company by far. You see a lot of the, um, the large diversified pharmaceutical companies um, do the same and, and uh, start focusing on um, women's health as an increasingly important part of their product portfolio. Mm, yeah, obviously it's an interesting line of growth for them. I mean, I actually just had my mammogram and it was, I noticed it was a Hologic uh, machine. I'm sure a very pricey one because it was one of those 3D <laughs> machines. Um, so I hope that, so. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, so, uh, you know, I want to remind our audience to please submit questions and, and we'll try to get to them as we get through the chat. Um, so you mentioned um, sort of the large diversified pharmaceuticals. Obviously it's a, it's a line of growth. I mean, I, I kind of want to pivot away and, and talk also about some of the just broader opportunities that you're seeing um, some of these companies pursue women's health or otherwise um, out there. You know, what, what's kind of catching your attention as we go into this year? Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess I'm going to happily characterize 2023 as maybe a year for business as usual or, or back to normal after, you know, several years of turmoil throughout the globe. But, um, you know, very specifically throughout the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And I say this for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, if, if you are a student of the healthcare industry, you know, one of the things that everybody has been very focused on in recent years is procedure volumes and yeah. when volumes will re revert back to normal um, levels, i.e. the levels at which they were prior to the pandemic. And we are almost there. Mm -hmm. um, 
in terms of volumes getting back to the 2019 level. We're past it. In outpatient care, volumes have already exceeded that level as, as uh, procedures can continue to shift from in to outpatient. Um, and in inpatient, we're approaching that levels. It's, it's dependent, of course, by area, but we're probably 95 to 99% back, back to where we were. But what's more important when we start to look forward isn't the absolute level, but the fact that um, the comparisons have now all surpassed us and, and yeah. going forward, you know, the, the sector, I think, will respond very well to a return to the low single digit overall kind of volume growth we've seen for many, many years, driven by um, aging of the population and, and technology advancement. So that bodes well for a number of the healthcare services companies, the hospitals, for instance, and many of the medical technology companies, um, predominantly the medical device companies that have really mm -hmm. been hit hard um, throughout the bumpiness caused by the pandemic. Something that's similar, I, I would say, is also what we're seeing in, in the challenges of labor and inflation, both of yeah. which have been big headwinds for hospitals, um, post-acute post care companies and medical technology companies that are dependent on hospital volume. And in no way, shape or form are these labor or inflationary issues going to go away. But the, in my view, in both cases, the worst is behind us. Mm -hmm. and, and the labor shortages have been a challenge for the sector, not only from a, a cost standpoint and, and labor inflation standpoint, um, but also because of the fact um, part of the reason you know, it took the system a while to get back to normal post-COVID was, was these staffing constraints, which, which just caused bottlenecks um, yeah. in hospitals. Yeah. And the worst is behind us there. Um, and I think the worst is also behind us from an inflationary standpoint. Again, I don't expect to see any um, downward shift in prices um, of input costs and components, but some of the shortages are, are now back in, in supply and the rate of increase is going down. And I think that bodes well. Mm, you know, that's good. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the staffing challenges and, and sort of, you know, just how you you think that, you know, hospitals and, and many of these healthcare companies have been transformed by the experiences of the last couple of years, because it has really been stark, right, in terms of the bottlenecks and the shortages and the strains. I mean, how do you, how have they learned to operate in a different way? Like, what are you seeing with companies in terms of how they perhaps changed um, through this pandemic? Oh, absolutely. It's a great question um, because it really has been, been transformative for some companies and for some companies, um, much less so. Um, I think, you know, in addition to the fact that hospitals are, you know, relative versus the initial days of COVID, um, very well equipped to deal with, with COVID um, within the hospitals, um, to the structural issue of labor shortages, a lot of the companies, you take HCA, another name we own, has done a fabulous job leveraging technology and centralizing functions um, and has really taken itself to the next level in, in terms of how it operates um, much more efficiently throughout its very, very large organization and the many, many hospitals and communities it serves. And, you know, this part of this was already begun pre-COVID. Part of it was something that was accelerated during the pandemic. But the positive news is, is this sets the company up um, for continued success in the years and decades to come. So mm -hmm. a lot of really, um, really impressive and very smart work there just leveraging IT. And I think we're still in the early stages of that. Um, 
the other thing I just think, you know, um, of course, we've talked in the past about telehealth, right? Yep. This this yep. is an area I, I suspect the usage of telehealth will begin to tweak down from the, the peak levels of the pandemic, but it is certainly not going away. And, you know, what what people had feared um, in the beginning has not yet transpired. And the fear that that telehealth would actually lead to an increase in unnecessary procedures. Mm -hmm. So far, there's no proof that that's happened yet. Um, and, and despite the fact that the volumes of, of telehealth procedures are very high, um, they have been replacing as opposed to um, becoming in addition to mm -hmm. physical visits. So, so that's another area. Um, I think that that we've seen technology tr transform and address some of these labor issues. Yeah. And again, early there as as well. Um, AI, um, yeah. artificial intelligence. Yeah. I, hate, I hesitate to say this because it's a term that's that's thrown around so often and possibly misused and overhyped. But the extent to which we're seeing this um, be incorporated into medical technologies, medical devices, the the process of of surgery. Um, is really fascinating as well. And, and um, in addition to streamlining operations and, and opening access, um, this certainly uh, over time as we get more data and, and do more analytics will lead, lead to better patients' outcomes. So that's so you mentioned outcomes, and I know you kind of um, touched on this in the very beginning. But we've gotten several questions. Um, one from Mahesh about value-based care, and and your thoughts on sort of that ecosystem and which businesses you think are going to be advantaged um, in yeah. that situation. And then Mark um, is a physician who says that healthcare value has increased, but the volume has not decreased. So I think there's a lot of talk about sort of value-based care going forward. Um, can you maybe just? define it and then yeah. talk a little bit about sort of who, who benefits? Yeah, no, no. And, and, and the, the increase slash decrease I was talking about was really a relative growth in the sector, um, as if that helps Dr. Mark and his, his yes. question. Yes. Um, but absolutely, I'm a huge fan of value-based care. And it's something that um, we've been talking about and watching progress, albeit very slowly, uh, for, for decades, actually. But value-based care is, is really just trying to transition from a healthcare system that's based on fee-for-service, where people get paid to do more procedures, more tests, prescribe mm -hmm. more drugs, um, to one that says, you know, we're going to reward you for doing what's best for the patient, for managing the patient's overall outcomes in the way that you see fit. Uh, holistically, hopefully, as opposed to the fragmented way that that um, we see under fee-for-service healthcare. And one of the reasons um, we've seen the, the transition um, accelerate as we have is new payment models have come into play where um, physicians are taking on more of the risk of managing the patient's care. And um, value-based Healthcare has many definitions, and and you'll hear a lot of statistics about X percent of physicians are operating under value-based contracts. Or um, there's a lot of, of definitions there. Some value-based uh, programs could be as simple as saying to uh, physicians and other caregivers, if you meet, if if you there follow these best practices as deemed by clinical societies, um, groups of experts in your field, we will reward you for doing that, um, mm -hmm. for doing so. Um, 
at the other end of value-based care, you, you could see physician groups taking full risk for the cost of managing patient care. So the managed care companies will say to a physician group, you know, we're getting a premium of $100 a month. Um, we spend, the payer, 85% of that premium dollar on medical care. Mm-hmm. We think you, the clinician, can do a better job managing patient care than we are. So we'll just give you that $85, you know, um, and have you treat the patient as best you see fit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the value-based care at an extreme. And I think we're early on in that transition. Um, but from what we've seen as physicians and, and other clinicians increase, increasingly move down this curve, we are seeing um, better cost containment and, and better outcomes for these patients. Part of it is just um, paying people to, in the past, um, you know, if people were paid to treat, 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 a lot right. of the softer stuff that's very important for a patient's outcome and, and healthcare costs um, weren't getting done. Yep. There's there's a, a word for this. It's called social determinants of healthcare, mm. um, which comprise a very significant portion of the drivers of an individual's healthcare costs. And social determinants of healthcare, um, historically, it, people don't get paid for them. These are, these are practices like ensuring the patient is, is taking the medicine that's prescribed, right. ensuring the patient has transportation to his or her doctor's appointment, to his dialysis appointment, mm-hmm. um, ensuring the patient has adequate nutrition, uh, so on and so forth. These are things that are very important when it comes to healthcare outcomes and medical costs, but have been falling through the cracks. Um, you know, we, we talked earlier, one of the private companies we've invested in is a company called CityBlock. Um, and, um, this is a company, um, um, that was founded, co-founded, I should say, and is now run by a CEO, Toyin Ajay, who is, is just a remarkable, um, healthcare executive. What CityBlock does is it, is it serves marginalized populations, um, that have very unique healthcare needs, many of which, again, have fallen through the cracks in the system. And they do this by leveraging this tech-enabled platform, um, which is very, very high touch and has deep, deep knowledge of, of community-based and neighborhood organizations, integrates with them, and is able to reach out to these high-risk, often neglected patients and, and provide uh, very personalized care hmm. in, in a manner that's much more cost effective. So yeah. there's a lot going on in in that area that's extremely exciting. So improving access to care and also just the outcomes, which is which is quite interesting. Um, so is there a publicly traded company that you think is a good way into sort of um, sort of tap into this trend of value based care? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, all the managed care companies are, mm. are you know, and, and, you know, I'll start out by um, you know, if we want to talk about women's health, um, Elevance, formerly mm-hmm. called Anthem Health, is is run by Gail Boudreau. Um, she's a fabulous CEO with many, many years of experience. Um, and Centene um, also has a, a woman CEO, Sarah London. And and these are just, we, we own a number of the managed care companies very broadly. Um, but these are two companies, I highlight them because they, they both are run by um, female CEOs. And that was the topic of, of yeah yeah of our discussion today, but these are companies that are that are smack dab in in the middle of what, what we're talking about. Um, 
Elevance um, is the largest uh, publicly traded or the only publicly traded Blue Cross Blue Shield company. And it has um, a large uh, commercial book of business um, based on that incredible brand name. And it also services um, Medicaid and Medicare populations. Um, Value-based care is, is, as mentioned, kind of part and parcel of what, of what the managed care companies have been pushing for some time. Right. Um, and, and the same with Centene. Centene has a slightly different focus than Elevance um, in that it predominantly focuses on um, Medicaid, Medicare, and, and the exchange, the ACA exchange markets. But again, leveraging value-based care and focusing on, on you know, getting the best results for the pace for the patient and aligning financial incentives throughout the system and encouraging you know, the sharing of data and the holistic treatment of, of patients is core to what these companies do. Yeah, and that data and the holistic aspect of it are so important as we go forward to try to like deal with the healthcare costs in the country. Um, Absolutely. So Deborah's asking, um, what health healthcare sectors do you see doing well in 2023? So we just sort of talked about managed care with the, the value-based care. Um, are there other sectors that you think are well-positioned? You mentioned a little bit about utilization improving and helping some, some areas. Um, what else should we be looking at on our radar? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think I, I started to go down this path earlier um, when I was talking about stabilization of volumes and um, some easing of, of um, labor pressure and, and supply inflation. Medical device companies, I, I think, are, are is a very attractive area um, looking out this year, because, again, these are companies that are uh, that that sell medical technology and devices to hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers, and when volumes dry up, so does their business. So um, there's a lot of companies that I think will benefit from the combination of just this back to normal environment I mentioned, but also from you know a ton of uh, innovation and attractive um, uh, product portfolio and product launches that we'll see coming out over the next year or so. Um, one company that that's, I think, really interesting is um, a company named Insulate. I, I mentioned this one uh, until very recently. The company was run um, by a female CEO, um, um, Stacey, um, so sorry, um, Petrovich. And, and recently she had a step down and she was replaced. But she has done a great job taking this company to the next level, um, as has her successor. And this is a company that's benefiting from a new product launch um, late last year of the Omnipod 5, which is kind of a next generation um, uh, uh, pump for, for um, insulin pump, excuse me, um, that benefits from, from AI and um, you know monitoring the patient's symbols in real time and adjusting the level of insulin that's needed by the payers, uh, by the patient. And so, so that's a company that's really interesting in that regard. I think if you look across the medical technology space, companies like Boston Scientific is, a, is another one that just, you know, the benefits of, of um, just business as usual, the massive investment in innovation over, over the decades, um, and kind of what we see coming out the product, the product pipelines are going to be very interesting and very compelling for these stocks going forward. And, and really, I think, the vast majority, there's many, many more companies um, throughout the medical technology space. Stryker is another example of a company. Uh, used to be more orthopedic oriented, 
Uh, but the company really has a diversified uh, product portfolio now across um, a number of fast-growing, attractive parts of healthcare, and is, is really set up um, based based on kind of this core tailwind I mentioned, but also you know company and product-specific innovation coming forward. So a lot of companies there, and a lot of excitement there. I also would would throw into the mix. Um, life science tools and technology companies, which um, after showing very, very you know, strong performance during the pandemic, um, pulled back more recently as you know, some of the companies started to deal with the impact of the anniversary of, of COVID, mm-hmm. um, COVID-driven tests um, and purchases. And, you know, again, with what people forget is, yes, the, the bump, you know, the, the very sharp, strong, short-term tailwind from COVID has dissipated. But many, most of these companies um, generated a ton of free cash flow during this period from the testing, the COVID testing um, procedures that, that, you know, yes, may be declining. And they put that, those funds to good use in many cases, um, you know, rolling out new, um, innovative products, but also expanding their install bases. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of companies that didn't um, expanded meaningfully the number or the amount of um, equipment that they had, testing equipment. And this creates um, another source of very strong growth for the decades to come for these these companies. So I'd put Thermo and Danaher um, in in that category. I also I also like oh Agilent's another company you know except exceptionally well positioned going forward by uh, um, by you know the, the benefits of COVID and and also some of the structural changes that that have occurred since the pandemic um, mm-hmm. benefiting their their industries. Those are, um, those, yeah, those you know, are great. People looking for more value ideas. Yeah. If you look at some of the contract research organizations CROs, mm-hmm. um, these stocks did very well during COVID. Um, as and leading up to COVID, even more importantly, due to the biotech funding environment being as strong as it has it's been, and the, the multiples have taken a pretty significant hit in recent um, quarters, as the biotech funding has environment has cooled down. Thought being that um, growth in these companies will suffer. The reality is, however, um, you know, they, absolutely without doubt funding remains will be increasingly difficult for biotech companies for some time, but the vast majority are so well funded, there hasn't been um, a tick down in growth in the performance of existing trials. And hmm. yes, maybe the um, RFPs have begun to slow slightly, but the reality is there's enough, enough cash and enough demand and enough innovation um, that these companies will be able to continue to grow through any you know continued turndown in the biotech funding environment. That's interesting. So really I was gonna, interesting yeah, I, yeah, I was going to ask. Yep, um, I was going to ask you about um, the the backdrop. Yeah, Icon is one. ICLR another one. Um, we look at if you are deep value. This is a company that's going through a major hiccup. So I'd only tread here if you have uh, very very thick skin. But a company named Cineos, um, LabCorp is actually one I'd put very high in the list. This is a company that is. Half of its business is from a diagnostic lab, a central lab business. Um, the other half is a contract research organization called COVID. Um, 
And, and again, I think that company's multiple has been hit by the phenomenon I just mentioned. And I think there's there's upside to both businesses going forward. So that that's a name I'd put highly on my on the list. And interesting, a, a couple of Chinese companies, um, um, Wuxi Aptek, for instance, um, is a name that um, has has sold off late last year pretty hard with many of the the healthcare Chinese healthcare companies has benefited from a bounce um, early this year. But nonetheless, I think has has um, a very attractive growth outlook going forward. Mm, that's so interesting. I, I, um, I do a lot. Most of my time is actually spent on China, and obviously they're having a, a reopening as um, they kind of pivot on their COVID um, policy. So that's actually interesting because obviously the government there is very intent on creating safety nets and, and providing care for especially the middle class. So. Um, that's that's a great one to get in there. Um, so I, I guess, you know, maybe we'll close with sort of just your thoughts on sort of this, you know, sort of the longer term ramifications of what, what we've seen over the last two years in terms of COVID and, and concerns about it causing and what it's going to do to chronic conditions. Are you seeing more and more companies talking and thinking about that? And is that sort of one of the themes you think will play out um, through the sector going forward? That's a, that's a really great question. Um, I um, I absolutely see more and more talk and focus among this. Um, I would say though, it's it's very early stage. The amount of data we have is is um, very very low. Um, if you're talking really about long COVID and, and yep. the implications there, um, I think it's going to be a fascinating area of research over time. Um, but I do think just based on how um, you know, the, the pharmaceutical development uh, process worked and so on and so forth. I, I think it's going to be a long time before we before we see specific treatments. Mm -hmm. But I do think over the next couple of years, we'll be see, see more and more data that will be really very interesting. Um, maybe a more short term or intermediate term impact will be you know, the impact of these people, um, you know, should should their symptoms not ease um, or get worse right. on medical costs. Yep. Um, and unemployment across across the country more generally. And and so for better, or for worse, um, it's it's more likely that the system um, managed care companies, um, the physician providers, um, some of which are at risk, um, you know, the, the inpatient and outpatient um, settings of of healthcare. Uh, will will probably dealing with the brunt of this in the short term before it really gets to the pharmaceutical or, or medical technology. Mm, yeah, that's great. That's great context. I and mean, I know in terms of the unemployment numbers and, and sort of the labor shortage, there has been talk about sort of how that's contributing to that shortage as well in terms of the people Absolutely. who are disabled or, you know, have to take time out for, for one reason yeah. or another. Um, so this was a great conversation. And thank you so much. Um, that's all the time we have for today that went by very quickly. And you gave us an amazing amount of stocks to consider. So thank you for that. Um, thank you to the audience for tuning in. Um, Market Watch personal finance reporter Andrew Keshner will talk to Twyla Midwood, who's president of Advanced Tax Center, on what to expect from taxes and IRS customer services filing season. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again, Anne. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.